When I was in seminary, we studied various areas of theology and her related disciplines. For example, moral theology, sacramental theology, pastoral theology, sacred scripture, church history, and canon law. What these subjects consist of to someone who is more or less familiar with the Catholic faith is self-explanatory. But another division under which a lot of required classes fell was called systematic theology. Now that phrase didn't really ring a bell before I went to seminary. What I learned was, was that systematic theology is a relatively new phrase in theological education. In the past, this area was called dogmatic theology, or sometimes dogmatic studies. But that word dogmatic is none too popular anymore. To call a person dogmatic is to say that they are rigid or fanatical in their belief about something, perhaps even to the point of being willing to commit violence. Or it suggests a system of ideas that has uh, perhaps a certain internal self-consistency but which is considered hopelessly out of accord with actual reality. Systematic or dogmatic theology, however, is very important because it's an attempt to give a rational and coherent account of the Christian faith. It's the attempt to tell us what the revelation contained in sacred scripture and sacred tradition really means. For example, we see throughout the New Testament that Jesus is a man. A sinless man, but a man nonetheless. He lived and he loved, he wept and he ate, and he was tempted and he was tortured and he was killed. Jesus had to be human because, his, because the sacrifice of his sinless humanity on the cross was necessary to redeem us. That's why St. Paul would say in his letter to the Romans, for just as through the disobedience of one person, Adam, that many were made sinners, so through the obedience of one, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. But we also know from sacred scripture that Jesus was divine. He is the second person of the Trinity. He was the Son of God, the image of the Father. That's why St. Peter reminded us in the second reading of the words that the Father spoke to Jesus as also heard in the Gospel. This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus had to be divine because it was in the fact that God took on humanity that the gates of heaven were opened to us. Humanity itself was elevated by the incarnation. So we are presented with something of a dilemma. Jesus is said in scripture to be both human and divine. He is the son of God, but also the son of man. How can one possibly reconcile these two ideas? This is where dogmatic theology steps in. The only answer that satisfies all that is revealed to us in scripture is to say that Jesus was both fully human as well as fully divine. But to speak this way in a, in a, in a sense that can be philosophically coherent, the fathers of the church said that the person of Jesus Christ had two natures, one divine and one human. Every other person, by contrast, has one nature. I'm the person, Scott Cena, and I have a human nature because I am a human person. But Jesus Christ has two natures, one divine and one human, while being one person. And that is the short story of how a dogma is born. In this case, the Christological dogma that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine, while being one integral person.
Divinity and humanity are joined co-equally in his person without either his humanity or his divinity being in any way modified or compromised. But notice that in holding this dogma, the church does not say that we can necessarily explain or fathom what it would be like for a person to have both a human and a divine nature. We can't fathom what it means to say that every thought that Jesus had was the product of a divine and human intellect operating in tandem, or that every action that he took came from a divine and human will operating in perfect harmony. We can never fully understand how the divine nature of Christ could compress itself into the narrow confines of a created human person, just as we can never fully comprehend how a mere human person in all its frailty could contain the beingness of God. Yet that is our dogmatic faith in who Jesus Christ was. It's a mystery that can be forever probed, but it can never be totally comprehended. Its beauty lies precisely in its opacity to our reason, in our inability to fully penetrate it. Because we can never explain it, we can only marvel at God for his willingness to join himself to humanity in this way so as to work our redemption. Ultimately, our only final response is wonder and love. How contrary this is to the popular stereotype of a dogma. People consider a dogma as, as something that has an icy certainty and a rigidity about it, something that is a substitute for critical thinking, something that arrests our creativity or our wonderment. Yet a dogma in the Christian, Christian sense is exactly the opposite. The dogma of Christ hold that, holds that his humanity and his divinity existed in a perfect, exquisite, balanced tension, and we can marvel at the mystery of both of them. Dogma tells us that we cannot compromise or ignore or obliterate Christ's humanity or his divinity. We cannot let one aspect supersede the other. This dogma holds open the infinite possibilities for our understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. To believe that our Savior is fully God and fully man at the same time is a springboard to the most sublime contemplation of the mystery of the Incarnation, the indwelling of God in the world which forms the basis of our sacramental imagination. To reject the dogma by contrast and to say that Christ was solely human or solely divine is to narrow our horizon. It closes us off to the mysteries of Christ. Throughout the centuries, many heretics have denied the fullness of the Christological mystery, meaning they have tried to assert that Christ was, more or less, just a human being, or alternately, just God appearing to us in a human guise. You can half-sympathize with why they would be tempted to think so. It's so much easier to call Jesus just human or just God makes everything black or white. There's no shades of gray, no mystery to contemplate. Sometimes historians of a secular stripe laud heretics as bold thinkers, willing to go against what the church taught. Instead, looked at in the proper light, we can see they were simply being boring. They reduced Jesus to something simple. Just as Christ was a union of human and divine natures, we see in his transfiguration that he converses with Moses and Elijah, two of the major figures of the Old Testament. Moses was the great lawgiver. Through him, God made the covenant with Israel that formed them into a nation. And this covenant was filled with many necessary practical 
and even mundane things. Rules and regulations for how people were to conduct themselves, as we find in the Ten Commandments. Procedures for how disputes were to be resolved, and guidelines for how to go about worshiping God. Yet Elijah also makes an appearance. Although he is as equally an iconic figure in the Old Testament as Moses, he represents something different. He is a prophet rather than a lawgiver. Like all the prophets, his mission to, was to call Israel away from a rote and corrupted system of worship and, a, and of a legalistic obedience to the law. Elijah spoke of the covenant not merely as a system of laws or rules, but as a gift from God that must be lived out in fidelity, hope, and charity. These two offices, that of the lawgiver and of the prophet, do not stand in opposition to one another properly understood. Rather, they are intertwined. The lawgiver speaks with sober analysis and practical wisdom. The prophet, by contrast, calls out with fiery pronouncements to remind Israel of who she was meant to be and to call her to a radical renunciation of sin. God's covenant with Israel required both types of leaders. In being transfigured with Moses and Elijah, we see that Christ is meant to represent the summation of both archetypes. Just as he is both human and divine, in his person he reconciles the tension that exists between the law and the prophets. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He points us to the fulfillment of the law in charity and in truth. Thus we see Christ as the answer to everything that Israel was longing for the king who would lead them in obedience to the law of the Lord, rooted not in subservience, but in love. As Christians, we will always have the supreme example of Christ as our true king. But in the life of the church, it is typically the case that no one person or leader by themselves embodies the exquisite tension between law and prophecy. Most instead will fall closer to one archetype or the other. We have saints and leaders who fall into the mosaic law-giving camp. For example, Thomas Aquinas or Pope Benedict. And we have those who fall more into the Elijah prophetic camp, such as St. Francis of Assisi or John Paul the Great, or perhaps Pope Francis. We are blessed that as a church that we experience both types of leaders at different times in different places, because we need both because the beauty and grandeur and depth of the Christian faith means that no one person can typically speak to it in all of its fullness. Instead, we remember the words that Christ himself spoke. Wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.